0: Om um, Shri Hariṁ paramānandam upadeśtāramīśvaram vyāpakam sarvalokānām kāraṇam tam namāmyaham So we are studying this text Aparoksha Anubhuti and we are actually towards the end, almost at the climax of the text, the author Shankaracharya has prescribed meditation. And this meditation which he prescribes has 15 practices, 15 practices. Um, we read in the verses 100 and, 100 and 102 and 103, the practices themselves, the list, I'll give you the list once more. Um, you will notice that all the practices are taken from Hatha Yoga. The names are from Hatha Yoga. From Patanjali Yoga, the yoga of meditation and Hatha Yoga. So from different practices of yoga these names have been taken. But Shankaracharya gives each of these practices a twist. A a Vedantic interpretation. A non-dualistic interpretation. So what's going to happen now is, we will take up each of these 15 practices and try to understand them first in their original yogic meaning, one. And second in the higher interpretation given by Shankaracharya from a non-dualistic point of view. Now remember, sometimes Shankaracharya can seem sarcastic about the the basic yogic meaning of the term. But that does not mean he's making fun of that. There is great wisdom in those practices. Those practices are foundational, they are basic. And often we shall see in our rush for the more glamorous, cool kind of non-dualistic practice, we'll see really what we need is more the the basic yogic practices. So we must know both. Let us, I'll I'll give you the names of the 15 practices and then we will take them up one by one. We've already read these, verses 102 and 3. I'll give you the, the term and the original meaning in yoga. What it means in Vedanta, we will see later on. Yama, the moral restraints in religious life you have do's and don'ts so these are the don'ts niyama second uh, the imperatives the moral do's what what you have to practice so basically yama and niyama comprise morality in the ashtanga yoga system of patanjali tyaga renunciation maunang silence desha auspicious place kala auspicious time Asanam. Sitting. Sitting. Moolabandha. Moolabandha is a kind of lock. These are various kinds of locks, L-O-C-K, used by those who practice Hatha Yoga, they know. There are various kinds of locks which are used to increase the efficacy of the asanas. So, Moolabandha. Dehasamyam. Posture. Posture of the body. Driksthiti. Stabilizing the vision. The eyes, focusing the eyes. Prana Sangyamanam, pranayama basically, control of the breath. Uh, Pratyahara, withdrawal of the senses from the world. Dharana, focus. Dhyanam, meditation. And 15, samadhi, the deepest absorption, which culminates, meditation culminates in that. These are the 15 in sequence. But the meanings which Shankaracharya will give are very different. We will see. So for a comprehensive understanding, we shall see the original yogic meaning and the non-dualistic interpretation or the insight. All the practices that Shankaracharya will give can be termed up termed in this way, non-dualistic insight meditation. We shall see how to do that. Of the 15 practices, you will see Eight of the terms are directly taken from the Ashtanga Yoga of Patanjali. Yama, Niyama, Asana, Pranayama, Pratyahara, Dharana, Dhyana and Samadhi. So eight terms are directly taken from the Patanjali Yoga Sutras. See, when you want to practice meditation, you have to go to the best source. And the best source is Patanjali Yoga. They are specialists in meditation. So eight terms are taken from them. What Shankaracharya will do with those terms will, will leave the yogis distinctly unamused, but we shall see. And then seven terms, Shankaracharya adds to those eight. Those terms are also yogic terms. They're taken from various Hatha Yoga practices. And so, total 15 terms. And 15 practices. First, the yogic practice, then the Vedantic or non-dualistic practice. First, the lower, the basic, and then the higher. Let's go on. Remember, all of these have to be done for a long period of time to stabilize the knowledge. Don't look confused as if what knowledge is he talking about? What we have studied till now, the last one year, if uh, that is what we are trying to stabilize, you're coming in at the end now. So the knowledge brahma satyam jagat mitya jiva brahma evanapara Brahman. the absolute alone is real the world is an appearance an appearance of what? of brahman what am I? I am brahman you, you are brahman so this knowledge of our own innate divine nature this knowledge has to be stabilized clarity, stability, assimilation that's the purpose of, uh, of these practices Now let's start. The first practice, we were on verse 103 is over. So 104. First practice is Yama. (laughs) Sarvam brahmeti vigjanad. Sarvam brahmeti vigjanad. Indriagrama sanyamah Indriagrama Indriyagrāma-sāṅyamah, Yamo-yam-mitisam-prokto, Yamo-yam-mitisam-prokto, Abhyāsaniyo-muhur-muhur, Abhyāsaniyo-muhur-muhur. muhur muhur, muhur vijnanat By the clear understanding that everything is Brahman. Restraint of this the group of senses This is called yama and this has to be practiced Continuously moment to moment All right, let's take a step back from what Shankaracharya has said here Go back to the basic meaning of the term yama This we find in Patanjali yoga the first step or the first limb of the eight limbed yoga the first step of the eight steps of Patanjali yoga What does it mean there? Five practices, restraints, the don'ts, restraints for, these are the foundations of spiritual life. So if you want to be a yogi, a meditator, there are five practices one must do. Yama includes these five. What are they? Ahimsa, nonviolence. Nonviolence. Satya, truth. Now remember, these not to be done means it's not that you have to not do ahimsa. You have to do ahimsa, not do violence. Non-violence is not committing violence. Truth is not telling false uh, falsities. So satyam, truth. Then brahmacharyam. sense control. Basically here celibacy, or uh, avoiding sexual impropriety. So, brahmacharya. Then aparigraha. Non-acceptance of gifts. aparigraha We'll see. I can see eyebrows going up. <laughs> How can you not accept gifts if you are in society? What will happen to, what do they call it? Black Friday or... Black Friday? Yes. So, um, then we'll see. And then the last one is asteyam, uh, Non-stealing. So five practices. Ahimsa. Satya Brahmacharya Aparikraha Asteya What do they mean? First of all, non-violence. Non-violence in thought, word and deed. Again, of course, appropriate to your, your position in society. Avoidance of violence in thought, word and deed. If you are um, If you are a monk, it's an absolute practice. If you are a soldier in society, then it has to be uh, adjusted moderated that way but everybody can can and should practice nonviolence as far as possible thought word and deed the yoga sutra says in perfection in nonviolence when the yogi is perfected in nonviolence even animals who are violent towards each other natural enemies they will play peacefully in front of such a yogi so the lamb and the lion uh, play Play peacefully in front of the, um, uh, the yogi who's established in non violence. In fact, there are a lot of interesting work being done in positive psychology now. Steven Pinker and others are doing a lot of interesting work showing that uh, you may not believe it, but actually we live in less violent times. In t- terms of what happened just day for yesterday, you may not believe it, but in the terms of history, of hundreds of years, of thousands of years, actually our time is less violent than ever before. Not only that, um, I was seeing a recent study, non-violent struggles versus violent struggles, for whatever end, some kind of social reform or a freedom movement or whatever. It's the non-violent struggles, they have studied it. it, they have been more successful on the average than the violent struggles. It's an interesting study that I came across. And so on. So, nonviolence, ahimsa. Again, adjusted to your particular circumstance. But the intention must be always nonviolent. I remember reading about this great martial artist, a karate expert, uh, who a Japanese teacher, who was really lethal. And one of his students writes that... Uh, it, it was in those days when the mugging was pretty common in, in the streets of New York. So he said, I always wondered what would happen to the poor mugger who tried to mug my sensei, my, my teacher. And actually one day he got held up by some guy with a, with a knife or something. Perfect for using his very advanced karate. And what did this teacher do? He quietly handed over the money and then let the man go. And when he was asked, why didn't you defend yourself? You know what the teacher said? He showed these hands, which could smash bricks and tiles and so on, wood. He said, how can I use these on a human being? Mm -hmm. So that is nonviolence. From a position of strength, not from weakness. Nonviolence requires strength. Non-violence. Vivekananda was once asked, what should the weak do when oppressed by the strong? And he said, why? Thrash the strong, of course. (laughs) So non-violence, not from a position of weakness, from a position of strength. Then, um, truth, satyam. Now here, what is mentioned here is, one should not tell falsities. What is is being said, recommended here, is not that you should go around telling all sorts of truths to all all people all the time. (laughs) You'll find yourself very unpopular very soon. But nobody has forced you to tell an untruth. So you're a businessman. You don't have to go around telling all your business secrets to everybody because it's the truth. No. But don't tell untruths. Honesty is, is fundamental. I have earlier told you the story of the yoga teacher whom this man approached and said, teach me meditation, Patanjali yoga. And the yoga teacher said, well, all right, there are eight practices. And the first one is you have to tell the truth, you know, the yama, you have to tell the truth and you have to have self-control. And this man said, yeah, 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 I know all that. They taught us all that in kindergarten. Skip that part. Teach teach me how to sit, how to breathe, how to meditate, you know, the, the... cooler parts later on the more glamorous parts and this uh, his answer the yoga teachers answer it works best in Hindi I'll tell you and then translate the teacher said (laughs) are you going to learn eight limbed yoga or the handicapped yoga you know with minus two limbs the first two limbs are moral practices you want to leave out those moral practices and learn and get the other six limbs won't work and the teacher said Aap black money money dhyan ge, dhyan hoga in hindi you're going to have you know black money's undeclared income stashed away income you're going to have your stash of um, you know cash and you're going to put your meditation mat on top of that and sit and meditate you think you can meditate you cannot truths honesty it is said satyam bruyat priyam bruyat ma bruyat satyam apriyam Tell the truth, tell it sweetly, and don't tell harsh truths. Even if you have to tell harsh truths, there is a way of telling a harsh truth. Somebody in um, Holy Mother Mahashwara, she told a, one of her disciples, who was uh, the habit of uh, I had a sharp tongue. Why do you speak like that, my child? When you are going to talk to a person who has a defect in the foot, maybe instead of saying, "How did you become lame?" Which say, uh, if you really must say something, how did your, uh, your foot get that way? You know, something softer. There's a sweeter way of putting it. But, I mean, if you have to tell a harsh truth, that also can be put in a soft way, in a sweet way, in you know? a non-hurting way. I like this, Mark Twain. Mark Twain, uh, he said, I have often seen people who claim to be fond of the brutal truth. Mark Twain. Says well, people who claim to be fond of the brutal truth are more fond of brutality than the truth. <laughs> Often they are more fond of the brutality than the truth itself. There is a, a saying, what should you say? Satyam hitam mitam ruyat abhisam vadi It's a very nice saying in Sanskrit. Tell the truth. Tell that which, speak that which is beneficial. Mitam means beneficial. Think about it. Is it beneficial? Tell that which is... And speak less. Mitam, limited. And Abhisamwadi. That which is universal. Not one point of view. That would be the end of all our political pundits and you know the, all the talk shows and uh, all of people arguing for this point of view or that point of view and coming to blows. Well, as far as possible, let's say and peshalam sweet gentle it, the hindi translation would be komal very, very very soft one swami recommended that you should drink think to, thrice before uttering words before saying something think it through thrice is it true is it useful how can i use the minimum possible words is it universal is it uh, sweet well if, even if not three times at least once one should run it through one's, one's mind so satyam, truth then brahmacharyam um, avoiding sexual impropriety depending on whether is one is committed to a vow of celibacy a monk or a, a householder for different persons in different stations of life the vow will be different but still brahmacharya. Swami Vivekananda said that um, the chaste brain is tremendously powerful. A lot of energy is wasted otherwise. So in spiritual life, power comes from uh, sense control, from uh, chastity. So brahmacharya has been recommended to whatever extent your position in life allows you. Brahmacharya. Then aparigraha. Not accepting gifts. That might seem a strange one. But actually accepting gifts. Remember we are going to meditate. So the mind has to be. uh, It's going to be very refined and delicate. We have to talk about subtleties here. Accepting gifts opens you to obligations. You automatically feel the need to give back. You may not think so. But if you are in advertising. In sales you know that it is so. One One of the principles of sales is. The reflex, the uh, reflex to give back. Reciprocation reflex. Anybody in sales, they know it. That's why a salesman will first come and say, they, will, they won't say, buy this. They'll come knock at your door and say, I want to give you a gift. Mm-hmm. It'll be something simple, small, not very expensive. The moment you accept the gift, the next step will be, not buy this. Can I speak to you about this product? And immediately you feel softened softened, that you've accepted something, so at least, what's the harm in listening to him? You don't normally take a gift and slam the door, thank you very much and goodbye. <laughs> you are softened. Uh, so giving back. You are immediately under obligation, your mind is affected. Further, Swami Vivekananda clearly mentions it's understood in yoga, the evil tendencies of the giver's mind also enters our own minds. There's a story about Swami Premeshananda, um, who was a disciple of the Holy Mother, a very revered monk of our order. And uh, one day a gentleman came and he wanted to give him a gift, uh, a nice walking stick because the Swami was frail and, and ill health. a stick, a cane on which he could lean and walk. And the Swami said, no thank you, I, I don't need it. And this man said, uh, Swami, he understood, so he said, Swami, I don't want anything in return. I don't want anything in return. Just take it. I don't want anything at all. I'll be very happy. You just take it and then do whatever you like. And the Swami took it and he said, whatever I like. He said, yes, let me break it now. I'm going to break it now. And he saw the shock on that man's face. Ah, you see, even if you say that I don't want anything in return, it's in subtly in the mind. It's there. If I broke any random stick, you wouldn't just think the Swami has gone crazy but this is your stick, which you are giving it to me, the cane and I'm going to break it in front of you and obviously you are shocked so there is a subtle expectation there is this little attachment to the thing it's mine, I'm giving it to you you will treat it well so obligation, we get into obligation and the last practice is is um, asteya non-stealing, quite obviously one should not accept what should not take what what does not want belong to one without even without permission once somebody uh, bought a couple of lemons i think from a place uh, to sri ramakrishna <coughs> hmm? right to sri ramakrishna and uh, so that person is to give to for sri ramakrishna but in the meantime the owner of that land had changed so the trees belong to somebody else and sri ramakrishna couldn't take it Couldn't use it. He asked for it to be returned. Because it's not mine and it's not due to me. And this one can extend more subtly. You think, how much is mine really? If you look at the modern environment movement today. Just because I'm rich, just because I can do it, is it really mine? Do I really have a right to these resources? there was this uh, philosopher who thought about how much he should donate and he developed a philosophy based on that and he found that other than the bare subsist- subsistence that I have, I really have no right to even to the earnings that I'm getting, which I get from a job I should give it away and he used to actually give it away Give it away. there are such people so these are the five basic practices uh, the moral restraints, the don'ts. Nonviolence, truth, chastity, um, non acceptance of gifts, and um, non stealing, not using or taking possession of something that does not belong to me. So these are the five. Yes. Uh, not accept gifts, if you are a yogi. Right. And uh, uh, what I'm saying is non-accept, non-stealing means not taking up resources which are um, not not mine. Uh, which do, Which do not belong to me. A yogi would give away resources which even legitimately belong to him or her. That's the moral sense. The moral sense is Legitimately, legitimately it's due to me. I've earned it. It's my income after tax, but that person still gives it away And there are many people who give large amounts of money away in in charity, though it, it belongs to them So are they giving gifts? In fact, if you ask such a person, they wouldn't really think they're giving gifts They just they don't feel a sense of ownership to it or entitlement to it unless it's yours You don't feel you're giving it away and second Remember, the practice is not accepting and giving gifts. Practice is not accepting gifts. It doesn't stop you from giving gifts. Uh-huh. Now, in society, of course, you have to think about it. Uh, in society, when a lot of people are giving you gifts, when it's a practice, say it's a religious festival or some kind of, it's Christmas, uh, you don't have to be a grouch to be a, a, a yogi. Uh, make sure you give, it, give, give back, give back more than you get. Uh, some some such thing, so that your mind is not affected by it. Uh, I leave it to each individual to think. But these are the basic practices. Now, the what does Shankaracharya say here? He says something quite different. He says everything is Brahman. With this insight, control the senses. This is Yama. What about truth and non-violence and uh, chastity and non-acceptance of gifts? He says, no, the approach is quite different here. Do you remember the, the, the story of the princess of Kashi which I have told you earlier? But it is absolutely relevant here. This is what is meant. Very quickly, the, it's a very cute story. It goes like this. There was a prince, and a king, and a queen, and all of that. And there was a dramatic performance in their court, uh, where the, the drama, which was staged in the court of the king, one of the characters was supposed to be the princess of Kashi, princess of Benares. And they couldn't find, it was supposed to be a little girl. The princess was a little girl. They couldn't find a little girl to play the part. But the queen said, my son, the prince, is about that age. And you can dress him up as a princess. As a he, So as a cute princess, he was dressed up, and he played the part, and he looked so cute, the queen said, make a painting of this boy in, in that dress. So the court painter came and made a painting. It would be so much easier today. You just need your iPhone, and you can take it. So the court painter came and um, made a painting. Do come and sit. Come and sit. And years passed, 15 years down the line, one day the prince who was grown up now was rummaging around a storehouse. I'm cutting the story short. So, and then he found this picture and he saw that it's the picture of the princess of Kashi and it was 15 years old and he thought, this princess must be my age. And he fell in love with her. And he said, I want to marry this princess. She must be my queen. And uh, then he, he moped and he wouldn't do all his princely things. And his mother and the father, the king and the queen became sorely worried about him. But he was so shy he couldn't express what was in his heart. Finally the wise old minister takes him aside and asks him, Prince, what ails you? You can tell me, you can confide in me. And the prince said, I am in love. And the minister said, that's very good. Who is she? Oh, she's the princess of Kashi. Oh, that's wonderful. Where did you meet her? Well, I didn't meet her, but I have seen her picture. And well, that's good. It's an old picture actually. Where did you see this old picture? It's in our attic. And she was, it was 15 years ago. She was um, a child at that time, but she must be, the date shows she must be my age now. Then the minister, it's something went off in his memory. And he thought, where did you see this picture? Can you take me to this picture? And the prince took him down down into the cellars, into the storeroom and showed him the picture. And the minister says, Prince, you need to sit down. this is no princess of Kashi and the prince says whoever she is I'll marry her this is not even a, a girl it's you that thou art Tatvam Asi and it tells him the whole story of the the dramatic performance which was staged 15 years ago and how he came to play the role of the princess of Kashi now the question the moral of the story the point of the story is what happens to the prince's desire for the princess of Kashi it goes away immediately effortlessly? Does he have to practice moral restraint and the Yamas and and all? No, it just goes away. Why does it go away? Because first of all he sees there is no such person as the princess of Kashi. And that princess of Kashi is none other than me. There is nothing there other than me. It's me in that form. That thou art That is the teaching of of Advaita. Whatever we are seeing and experiencing in the world is none other than you, existence, consciousness, place, with names and forms. So, the senses run outwards to these things considering them to be, this is nice, I want it. Or this is scary, I'm going to run away from it. Vivekananda said, Things are dead in themselves. We breathe life into them. Then we run towards them or we run away from them. They have no existence of their own. Your existence is lending existence and light to those those things. Which things? Everything. From your favorite cookie to your favorite phone to your favorite person. All of them are princes of Kashi. They have no existence of their own. They are phantasms. Or it's equally true to say their only existence is you you not this person Satchidan and the Brahman you as existence consciousness bliss you alone appear in those forms just as the prince see that both are true it is true that there is no princess of Kashi and it is also true that the princess of Kashi is none other than this prince it is true that there is this world is an appearance it's not real and it's equally true to say it's you both are the same. The world is an appearance and you are none the world is none other than your real nature appearing in all these forms in front of you. So with this thought, with this understanding, when you look upon the world, what will happen? Just like the princess desire for the princess of Kashi, our desires, they melt away. You may think, that's not so easy, it's not so easy, but you dwell on that and then you look upon the world with those eyes, with the eye of knowledge, you will find that which pulls you so much, will no longer, it will pull you a little less. Knowing that, I and that one are different, no, we are one and the same thing. Imagine, when you wake up from a dream, when you wake up from the dream, the most delicious food there, the million dollars that you got by winning the lottery, and so on and so forth. None of them have any attraction for you any longer. You don't regret it. Oh I wish I had slept a little longer just wanted wanted to finish that pizza. No. You just get up and say oh well. <laughs> you don't r- wake up and run to the bank to check whether the million dollars you got in the in the lottery are there have been deposited in your bank. You don't even for a moment feel attracted to that. What you see in a movie, what you see in a dream, <clears throat> you realize they have no reality. <clears throat> the movie that you see has no reality apart from the screen. Knowing that all of it to be the screen, your desire for that goes away. You know, they are just pictures on a screen. Here there are the world, just, is just pictures on you. You are the screen. The existence, the the, the consciousness which appears as this world, What appears as desirable things also the same thing uh, applies to that which repels us. That which scares us. That which makes you anxious. All of that is falsified. They are appearances. Imagine. I'll give you two examples. One is, you see in a movie, King Kong coming and smashing up, he smashed up the Empire State Building, I think. I saw this movie, one of the early King Kong movies, long time ago. Uh, he was climbing the Empire State Building. So, all the damage caused to New York by King Kong, how much does that bother you? Doesn't, doesn't, you know, you're more worried about the snow piling up on your <laughs> porch and I have to get up and clean that or so it has to be cleaned and that, that bothers you more than King Kong smashing up New York. Why? Why? Swami, so mean, that's fiction. That's a movie. And this is real. Exactly. So the worst of things, the greatest of damage, the most, the, the most terrible havoc, all of that is reduced to nothingness. Because just because of one reason, because it's not real. Though you experience that, you see it in a movie nowadays with I don't know three-dimensional movies and all, is more and more and more real, and yet no matter how real they make it, it's not real for you because you know it's not real. That's what he is saying: knowing that all of this is not real, or knowing that all of this is Brahman me, knowing that. There is nothing out there more than what is here. Then why should I go out? Why should my thoughts go out to things and people and places? Because there is nothing there more than what is here. Sarvam brahmati vijnanat By knowing that everything is none other than brahman. The senses are automatically controlled. In the isha upanishad. The first sentence of the Isha Upanishad the first opening line, the tremendous line. Isha Vasya idam Sarvam Yatkincha Jagat Tyam Jagat. Whatever you experience in this world, moving and immo- uh, immovable. Whatever you experience, living and non-living in this world. Pervaded by God. Pervaded by God means see God in it. Co- literally means cover it by God. How do you cover it by God? You discover, you uncover God. How do you uncover? You discover God in it in everything that you experience in this world. That's the first sentence. Um, I think it's Mahatma Gandhi who said, if all of Hinduism were to disappear tomorrow and only the first line of the issue of remains, all of Hinduism would remain. But the second line, is something interesting. The second line says this knowledge Protected by renunciation. Do not, a very simple maxim, do not covet anyone's wealth. That means do not covet anything at all. And the commentator Acharya, explaining this last quarter of the verse, of the mantra, do not covet anything, covet anybody's wealth, he says, who is there, and whose wealth is there to be coveted? Meaning, there is no wealth. It's like the princess of Kashi. It's not there. See, there is this. There are th- these two ways of dealing with it. It's there. I'm going to be a yogi, and I'm going not to shut. I'm going to shut my eyes to it. I'm not going to think about it. It's it's um, uh, it's covetable. It's nice. I wish I could get some of that, but no, I will not. I will restrain myself. I will pull my mind back. That's the yogic approach. I'll come to you. And the Vedantic approach is it's not there. It's I alone. I'm experiencing it. Just as the prince experienced the princess of Kashi. I'm experiencing it. But is it anything other than isness? Is there anything there other than my awareness? In, in my awareness, all of these are coming like movies playing on a screen. And hence, why should I covet it? What is there to covet? These are phantasm. It's like it's like trying to covet something in a movie, which I saw in a movie. Hmm? As silly as that. So there's a question. Yes, Bill. In traditional Hinduism, people seem to ignore social problems, saying it's unreal. The Danta teaches it's all unreal. Therefore, I'll let me go to a cave and meditate. But Swami Vivekananda told us, no. We must. We must serve. The truth. Yes. So the question here, if I understand Bill correctly, is um, there's a tendency to ignore social problems. Say it's unreal and then turn your face away from it and go and meditate in a cave. It's not a Vedantic attitude, actually. It's a yogic attitude. Yes. I must cut myself away from the world, I must withdraw into the peace. Inver, inward, inward peace, in the, to the peace of the caves, peace of the mountains and forests, so that I can meditate on the Self without being disturbed. Now, that's one. One, it certainly has been interpreted that way, but no longer, thanks to Swami Vivekananda and many modern teachers of Hinduism, uh, there is a very clear recognition of uh, the, that the uh, pr- purely private spirituality is no spirituality at all. And the basis for that is indeed this newfound social activism and concern is none other than Vedanta. You said, how can that be so? That comes from the oneness. You see, when you say I am one with everything, then the names and forms are false. true, but at the level of the body and mind, then if I am this body and mind and I am one with everybody, then all bodies and minds are also me. If I work at all to put food in this mouth, medicine for this body, a shelter for this body, then I must equally work hard to put food and medicine and shelter for others and take care of others. If saying a harsh word wounds this mind, then I'm equally in everybody. I must be careful not to say a single harsh word to anybody, not to, to hurt anybody, and so on. So the same Advaitic principle can be used as a basis for social activism. In fact, um, there is this gentleman, I just forgot his name, who combines Eastern philosophy with social activism in America. He has a foundation for that. It can be used, and it is being used, in fact, and not just Vivekananda, but many others, starting with, say, Mahatma Gandhi and so many others. So spirituality as a basis for social concern, certainly. Here, however, the question is yama, control of the senses. Now, you can have control of the senses in this way or that way. The Vedantic approach would be, if everything everything is really in here, then why do I go out there? One of the definitions, in fact, um, Jung, one of the definitions of libido, which I read was, every movement of the subject towards the object what a Vedantic insight every movement of the subject towards the object I am somehow limited and hence I need this to complete me. That's natural the child finds itself as a helpless little creature I need food otherwise I'll die I need warmth I need protection I am weak and helpless. So, a limited little subject moves out to the object for its own fulfillment. But as we realize that we are not the body, not the mind, we are this existence, consciousness, bliss appearing as the entire universe, what this book teaches us, when we begin to see that, then internally, psychologically, we are no longer so dependent on the object. We realize What does Vedanta tell you? It tells you that you are not this little subject, this uh, body-mind complex. Rather, you are that existence, consciousness, bliss which appears as all subjects and all objects. All of this universe is an appearance. All the objects and subjects are appearances in you. Vivekananda wrote in his poem, One only exists. It appears as nature, soul. One only exists. It appears as nature, soul. Soul, you. The the knowing subject, the experiencing subject. Nature, all of what you experience. That means you are the one who appears as this person and this person's universe. From, From the Vedantic point of view, from Brahman, the perspective is Brahman's perspective, not this individual being's perspective. So, from that point of view, why should the subject move out to the object? Vivekananda said that these are two philosophies of life, one is how much can we get? How much can I accumulate? How comfortable can I make my life? How can I enhance this existence of this personal little being and the it is how little can I get on by get on with? How little can I get on by with, with, with the minimum of resources and you'll be surprised you will surprise yourself pleasantly at first it might be difficult, but the more and more you practice, the more you see you hardly need anybody need anything. Huh. So why should I move out to the object? Is the question. So when I have the perspective that I'm not the body and I'm not the mind, it's very easy to see that I the atman has nothing to do with the objects of the senses. Yes. yes so how does this knowledge translate into the into the body's desires being cut off yes now there is a minimum level which you give to the body would you want the body to die no why should you but would you want to pamper the body anymore no why should you why do we pamper the body why is everything accumulated for this particular not all bodies i work towards accumulating stuff for this body. I work towards accumulating relationships, uh, for name and fame and pleasure, everything for this particular body. Do you see the, the craziness of that? The moment it enjoys something, it's gone. All of these things come and go. You can't hold on to one of them. You can't hold on to a person or to a thing, to a pleasure, nothing. And then life goes away. This body itself which you have slaved away for years and years to take care of and pamper. This will one day deteriorate and go, leaving you high and dry. (laughs) Why did you spend life like this? Rather the other way around. That I am the awareness in which a body and a mind is appearing. It's an instrument. It's a vehicle. Whatever the vehicle, vehicle requires fail. yes, vehicle requires maintenance, vehicle requires, so it requires exercise, it requires medicine, it requires shelter, it requires some food, good. Beyond that, that's pampering. That, see we have conditioned ourselves. In Hindi they say, We have conditioned ourselves, we have made a habit, a set of bad habits for ourselves. Now it will take persistent effort in the, re- in the other direction, to pull ourselves out of it. What Shankaracharya says, the yogi and the Vedanti have this in common. It will take persistent effort, whether you take it as yama as the five practices, effort to be non-violent, effort to be truthful, effort to be um, restraining the senses, and so on, or you take it from the Vedantic perspective, that all is Brahman, I need not. Provide the minimum necessity for the body. So that it doesn't perish or break down. That's all. You will be surprised at how little the body needs. I remember sitting in the Himalayas with this very senior monk. We we were having a conversation. And two ladies uh, who uh, clearly they were very well-to-do from one of the bigger cities of India, I guess. Um, They were wearing expensive clothes. They came and sat down near us. And they were asking this monk who was far senior to me. They were asking this monk, Swami, how can you stay like this? I can't do without my morning cup of tea. So how can you stay in this this terrible cold and this austere little hut? You've been staying here for 50 60 years and the Swami just gave a very simple answer. This is just practice There's nothing nothing very difficult about it The human body and mind get used to it Now what would you want the body and mind to get used to? comfort and luxury and softness or austerity and simplicity austerity and simplicity Because comfort and luxury and softness there is no end to it and it does not enhance your happiness in any way. A person living a simple, austere life is equally happy or maybe happier than the person who is living in a... um, Somebody pointed out to me, Swami look at this building, it's on the east side, a particular address. Look at this building, there are 40 billionaires staying here, 40. So this person who lives this simple austere life is i guarantee you from a moment to moment basis as happy as those persons moment to moment yes Yes. Yes. So the question is, if I understand you correctly, that the the other side is too much of austerity. As I said, the story of the Buddha. So that's why the Buddha said the middle path. What is the principle? He asked a disciple that uh, the stringed instrument, you know, the veena. If the strings are loose and you pluck it, what will happen? Will you produce music? No. Why? Because the strings are loose. If you tighten it and tighten it and tighten it, what will happen? It will snap. There is no more music. So music comes when the strings are tightened just so. Not too little, not too much. So he talked talked about the Madhyamapanta, the middle path. Between too much austerity and too much softness. But the middle path of Buddha would seem pretty austere to us. <laughs> if you actually... If you actually read the Venerable Peter and others, the Buddhist codes for the for the monks and nuns, they're really really austere. So really, the body and mind do not need all this comfort, nor, nor all this entertainment. I have seen so many people who live the simplest of lives with great happiness, with great peace of mind and contentment. Okay, so the practice of controlling the senses. Eyes want to see something, ears want to hear that, tongue wants to taste this, the skin wants to touch things, Uh, you want to smell nice things. This moving out into the world, I want this, I want that, I want to hear praise, I I want to have the the most comfortable places and the the best vacations and so on and so forth. Draw a line and say at one point, enough, enough of this. No, you're not exchanging this for a vacuum. You are exchanging this for spiritual life, for stabilizing yourself in Brahman, for stabilizing this knowledge. Otherwise, it will not happen. The continuously engagement in pursuing pleasures in the world, then this knowledge will never be stabilized. Um, the examples used to give in uh, yogis give is doi pata in Bengali they say that means when you have to have curd, you have to let it ferment for a while, you have to let let it settle. You can't keep churning it. So, in the same way, uh, you, you must stay with this knowledge for some time. I am Brahman. Steady yourself in that. Use this knowledge itself to control the senses. Think about it this way Imagine if you have a clear sense of I am this existence consciousness place, and these desires are like little motes of dust. Floating in the beam of sunlight And they come up They float around and they disappear This person who is established in that Who has got this clarity Would such a person want to tell lies? Wouldn't that person automatically be truthful? Satyam? What do you think? Wouldn't such a person be automatically non-violent Who feels a oneness with everybody and everything? Wouldn't such a person automatically be non-violent? Wouldn't such a person have automatic self-control, self-restraint of the senses? Wouldn't such a person have nothing to do with gifts? You know, mentally would not accept it. Somebody put a costly um, shawl uh, in front of Swami Brahmananda, who was meditating under a tree, I think in Vrindavan or Kashi, Vrindavan I think. And he sat and meditated and then a thief came and noticed the Swami with this expensive shawl and quickly picked it up and ran away from there. Swami Ramaranda sat there and quietly looking at the whole scene. He never thought it was mine. He did not accept the gift internally. Would such a person accept gifts? No. There's nothing that I need really. And one of the things that holy persons, you know. They are so self-sufficient. If you try to give them something, they will have to keep on thinking and thinking, what do I need really? They don't need anything. They are the ones who give. They don't want anything. Let alone claiming that which does not belong to them. So all the five practices, they'll come naturally to a person who has got clarity about his or her oneness with this universe. They'll come naturally. All right. Now let's move on to the second practice. One practice whole whole class Sajati ya Sajātīya hascha Sajati ya prava hascha Vijati ya tiraskriti Vijati ya tiraskriti hi paranando A continuous flow of the vrittis, the thoughts in the mind, I am Brahman, I am Brahman. Continuously staying there and carefully avoiding all other vrittis. I am this person and I want this or I am afraid of that. Avoid that. Cut those modifications down. Make a deliberate attempt to stay with this thought. With this understanding that I am Brahman. Such a thing is called Niyama. And this is the highest bliss. It is practiced consistently by the wise. This is the meaning of the verse. Now Niyama, let's go to the original meaning in Patanjali Yoga. The basic meaning. The basic yogic meaning is... Again, five do's. We saw the don'ts earlier. Now, the five do's. What are the do's in Patanjali Yoga? Shaucha, Santosha, Swadhyaya. I'll tell you. Swadhyaya, Tapaha, Ishwara, Pranidhanani. So, ishva, so, the five. Shaucha, purity, internal and external. We'll go through this quickly. You know, cleanliness is next to godliness. So, internal and external cleanliness. Not just physical, clothes should be clean, body should be clean, mind also. Speech should be clean, mind should be clean. Uh, Even while taking a bath, uh, traditionally Hindus would chant mantras, take the name of of God in different ways. So, it cleans the mind. Then, um, there's a funny story about, uh, Hindus have this thing about taking a dip in the holy waters of, of the Ganges or the, the holy rivers at auspicious times, it cleanses your, skins, uh, your, your sin, not your skin maybe because the, the water might be very dirty, your sins it cleanses your sins um, Sri Ramakrishna used to tell a funny story about that. So the man goes does it really work? Does, do your sins go away if, if you uh, take a dip in the, in the holy Ganges? Well Sri Ramakrishna said yes when you take a dip in the Ganges, what happens? But we see that the person is not reformed. We see the same person again. Might be a little better than before, but this person is still the same. With the same old tendencies. But this person, Sri Ramakrishna says he goes in there. As he goes into the Ganges, all the sins fly off. And they sit on the tree there. <laughs> and as he takes a dip in the Ganges and he comes out purified. As he passes under the tree, they all drop on, down, down on him and take possession of him again. <laughs> meaning is it's not just a dip in the ganges it has to be internal cleansing so, so shaucha purity internal external purity then the s- second one is santosha contentment contentment with our lot with whatever state we are in financially you see swami you look outraged we are in new york in manhattan you're saying we should be content financially that will be the end of wall street don't worry, there aren't going to be too many yogis, so Wall Street will take care of itself. But, so shouldn't we aim at bettering our financial status? You might or you might not. If you're going to be a yogi, remember, that's not your primary purpose. So Sri Ramakrishna, even when his beloved Naren came and asked him, when he was suffering, his father had died, he didn't have a job, no way of supporting his his widowed mother and his brothers and sisters. He came and asked Ramakrishna please pray to the Divine Mother so that, you know, our condition improves. Even for his beloved Naren, Ramakrishna wouldn't ask God for such things. But finally, under pressure, he finally said, what did he say? Plain clothing and food. The simplest of clothes and food they will not lack. He didn't say they go going to be millionaires. No. So, Contentment with my lot. Yeah, if you're in terrible financial shape, of course you have to struggle to put your life back on track But now I have a million million the next million and the next billion. How far are you going to go and? Life is going away so fast just like that. It's the intelligent person who sees Who earns some money and says okay? I know what earning money is that's it Enough for myself and those dependent on me finished. So contentment, financially, relationship-wise, health-wise, whatever, iPhone-wise, whatever. So all of that, whatever I have got, that's enough. Don't keep on multiplying this. Don't spend your time and energy in this. Contentment. As far as spiritual life is concerned, divine discontent. I must see God in this life. Then the third one is Swadhyaya, which means um, there can be different meanings. The original meaning is actually a chanting of the Vedas. The traditional Hindus, they would chant the Vedas. That is Swadhyaya or Parayana, Veda Parayana, a re- repetition of the Vedic mantras, chanting of hymns. The second meaning could be study, study of scriptures. So that's a do, definitely a do you must regularly study the scriptures a third meaning of swadhyaya could be introspection literally swadhyaya means swa means self adhyaya means study so self study study of the self if you mean that way so introspection one um, swami told us early in the morning when you get up we were monastic novices first thing you should think is why am i here in this life and the last thing you think about when you go to sleep is what did i do towards my goal in today One day has gone. I have come here with a purpose to realize God. What have I done towards that end today? That's also swadhyaya, introspection. Third practice. Fourth practice um, is um, tapaha, austerity. Tapasya, it's a very important word in Hinduism. Some kind of... difficulty, pain, which you which you consciously take upon yourself. For example, fasting. It's difficult, but you take it upon yourself. For example, I know and the monks practice so many different kinds of austerities. I know this very senior monk who is our teacher in, in the monastery. And we discovered after 40 years of monastic life, he doesn't have a bed to sleep on. He, did, he used to sleep, sleep on a little, a little mat on the floor. And finally, now he has a bed. uh, The novices forced a bed into his room (laughs) above his protests. So that's an austerity, a tapa. Regular fasting, Ekadashi, um, once in a fortnight, fasting is common among many Hindus. So different kinds of, uh, are putting up with a little bit of variation in temperature. See, adjusting the temperature to exactly what I'm comfortable in, always not a good idea put up with a little bit of heat put up with a little bit of cold not not so much that you fall ill but enough that it's unpleasant and you're consciously deliberately putting up with it there if you go to kumbha mela mela in, in the gatherings of the hindus when millions and millions of hindus come for the sacred occasions you will see many sadhus practicing widely different kinds of austerities uh, someone someone has not uh, who who's, who never sleeps so that means doesn't go prone and sleep. So the only time when he takes a rest is there's a, a wooden plank on which he leans back. So has ne- never s- sat down actually for 20 years or 30 years. Somebody who hasn't cut his nails for, for 40 years and so on. So all sorts of weird uh, austerities. Um, that's why the Buddha said, and I'm sure such characters were there all throughout the history of India. So the Buddha said the middle path, neither this way nor that way. Even the middle path can be taken literally. I know this monk of our order, there's a very funny story about him. (coughs) His his name was Gunati Tananda Maharaj. So once he he was walking in the road, big, it's a very busy road outside the monastery. And he got knocked down by an auto. You know it's like a three wheeler in India. He got knocked down. And so they carried him into the monastery and they asked him, Swami what were you thinking? He said, no, the Buddha has said the middle path. So I was walking in the middle of the road, exactly. <laughs> that is something you should not do anywhere, whether in Calcutta or in, in Manhattan. <laughs> That's not what it means. But austerity is a, is a means. It has been widely recognized in India for centuries and millennia. It's a means of gathering power. It definitely gives you mental strength. Then the last one is Ishwara Pranidhana. Worship of God. Whatever practice you take up, meditation or whatever, some adoration of God in whatever form appeals to you, whatever is your tradition. could be Rama or Krishna or Christ in whatever tradition you have. A little bit of adoration of God daily. It's a very important practice. You ignore it at your own risk. So these five practices are the traditional meaning of Niyama. Niyama literally means in Indian languages rules, prescriptions. Maintain purity. These are the do's. Maintain purity. Maintain contentment. Maintain um, regular study of the scriptures. Maintain uh, austerity. Some kind of discipline. Physical discipline. Um, Vow of silence. Though That's there later on, so I'm not mentioning that now. That's another kind of austerity. I shall not speak. It's an austerity for you, but it's a blessing for others. (laughs) And then The um, worship of God so these are the do's please do these what does Shankaracharya say what is the non-dual approach to Niyama something very different again as you might expect the constant maintenance of this idea of this understanding hold on to it I am Brahman and the other idea that I am the body I am this mind carefully Give up that. Sajatiya vritti pravaha. Sajatiya means of the same type, of the same class. I am Brahman. You need not chant it like a mantra. I am Brahman, I am Brahman, I am Brahman. No. You might say, I am unattached. I am light. I am bliss. I am all. Whatever it is, hold on to that. If it is not here, if it is somewhere else, it's not Brahman. (laughs) If it is not now, if it is some time else, in the past or the future, it's not Brahman. If it is something else other than you, it's not Brahman. What is Brahman? It must be here, it must be now, it must be you. Center yourself in that, in that thought. So this kind of continuously centering yourself in Brahman and carefully doing away with that other, it takes a lot of work actually if you try to do that. But every moment is a moment to practice. This is the beauty of Vedantic meditation. You can practice at every moment. You can do it now. You can do it as you are walking out of the Vedanta society. You can do it in the subway. You can do it at home. You can do it after going to, when you go to sleep. You can do it the moment you wake up. What am I? A suitable Vedantic thought. Take it up and hold on to that. He says, Parananda. This is the highest bliss. Because often the reaction is, okay, so this is a Vedantic meditation, how long do I have to do this? You never ask, how long do I have to do, To you you never ask, so I have to sleep every night, so how long do I practice that? No! As long as you are living, you sleep every night, it's comfortable, it's nice to go to sleep. It's nice to eat when you are hungry. All the nice things that in life, you never ask, how long do I have to do it? It's a, Often you think that it's a difficult task. No. If, you, if one gets a clarity about what one is, then centering yourself again and again in that is productive of the greatest bliss, is productive of the greatest freedom, great relief. A huge burden is off your shoulder when you say, I am the witness self, I am pure consciousness. Think about it this way. Your real nature, which is pure, you don't, have to, you don't have to make it pure. Purity is natural to you. Impurity is superimposed on you. It's imposed upon you. Peace is natural to you. You are by nature peaceful. Restlessness is uh, It's incidental, accidental. It comes. Guilt. Shame, disgust, anxiety, desire, lust, none of them are natural to us. What he is saying is, our true nature as the blissful Brahman, as, as Brahman, as infinity, as consciousness, as bliss, as existence, praptasya prapti, it is already there. All you need to do is recognize it. In Hindi they say swikar karna, is accept it, is recognize it. Is claim it. It's there. I claim it. Look at the difference in philosophy. What would the yogi have you do? I am sinful. I must purify myself. I am restless. I must calm the mind down. I tend to think about the world. I must think about God. I tend to read trash and watch uh, trash on the internet and uh, watch uh, TV ceaselessly. A couch potato. No, I need to read spiritual texts. Swadhyaya. So, I have trash in the mind. I need to clean my mind. That's the yogic approach. The Vedantic, the non-dual approach is, no, you are peaceful, you are blissful, you are pure, right now, without any effort. All you need to do, but you need to do something. What you need to do is, recognize it. Claim it. I am this. See yourself as that. You say, Swami, you're confusing me. Are you saying that, Anger and restlessness and anxiety and shame and guilt are not there. I am not saying that careful. What I am saying is two things. They are first of all, they come and go. Before restlessness came, you were there. When the mind is restless, you are there. When restlessness goes away, you are still there. That which you were there before its birth, you were there during its existence. You were there when it when it died and went out. Then how can that thing be you? It cannot be you. It can. It has to be something different from you. It came and went. You say, "Yeah, but it's not me. But it's mine, right? My restlessness." No. How can it be yours? When it came without your wanting it, it stayed without your wanting it, and it left without your when, your when you were relieved when it left. But you cannot hold on to it, whether it is restlessness or guilt or shame or anger, nothing, impurity, none of them you can hold on to. They come and go. The Vedantic approaches: is, oh, they are coming. Welcome, namaste, come. You're going to stay, very good, make yourself at home. I'm un- untouched, it's not, you have nothing to do with me. You're going, goodbye, farewell. Nothing to do with me. I am existence, consciousness, bliss. That's one thing I'm saying. They come, they stay, they go. One. You are not touched by it. Second thing I'm saying is where do they come and stay and go? Not in you, in the mind. Lust and anger and greed and anxiety and terror and shame and guilt and impurity. All of them come and stay and go in the mind. You are not the mind. You are not the mind. One more thing. There is a principle. <inaudible> from the Upanishad. Powerful insight. That which was not in the beginning and will not be in the end is not right now. I will repeat it. That which did not exist in the beginning that will not exist in the end does not exist now. No restlessness earlier, after some time no restlessness. When there is restlessness right now in the mind it's not there. It appears like that. How? When you see your face in the mirror there was no face in the mirror earlier, later on there will be no face in the mirror right now? Right now? Right now there is no face in the mirror. It's a reflection. Is there really a face there? No, the face is here. There's no face there in the mirror. It's a reflection. It looks like that. So these are appearances in the mind. They have nothing to do with you. Steady yourself in your purity, in your peaceful Brahman nature. Then the remarkable thing will happen. The mind will also slowly become peaceful and pure and calm and free of guilt and shame and Uh, All your activities. You will be transformed into a saint without your knowing it. Affirm your nature as Brahman. That's what he's saying. All the practices with the yogi struggles with. Internal purity. External internal purity. And austerity. And uh, scriptural study. And worship of God. And and, um, contentment. All of them if you see. If you maintain this. I am the ever pure ever calm peaceful Brahman blissful Brahman all of these things will naturally manifest in your mind even then you are not attached to it let them manifest you are not attached to it so he says Niyama Niyama Kriyate Budhe there is a slight pun on this word so the wise do it as a rule they practice this Consistently. I stabilize me, myself in my Satchidananda nature. Chidananda rupaha shivoham shivoham. I am Shiva. I am Shiva. I am the, the nature of bliss. I am the nature of pure consciousness. Not as a positive affirmation. As a fact. If you look at look at the teachings which we went through. They clearly show you again and again and again. No time now. But we will continue next time. You stabilize yourself in the reality and the rest will come of itself. This is the Vedantic understanding of Niyama. Yama, Niyama. You might say, I'll end with this, they seem suspiciously same. You know, they're similar. Didn't Shankaracharya say the same thing in Yama and in Niyama? There's a difference. In one sense, yes, it's same. All the 15 are the same. He'll just tell you, stabilize yourself as Brahman. After all, it's meant to stabilize you in the Brahman knowledge. But there's a difference. What's the difference? Yama was controlling the vrittis. That means which flow outwards into the world. I want to taste this. I want to um, see that. I want to punch this guy. All of these vrittis which were flowing outwards, control the sense organs and the motor organs by the knowledge that you are Brahman. The world is an appearance in your Brahman. So self-control based on the reality of your Brahman nature. That's Yama. Niyama is continuous affirmation of your Brahman nature and cutting down of the, the, the wrong identification with body and mind. So in Niyama you are doing something. The original sense in the yogic do's and don'ts has been preserved here. Rather, in the first one, yama, the don'ts are based on the knowledge that you are peaceful Brahman. You are Brahman, peace itself. So there's no need, need to go out, you know, beg for pleasure from the world or be scared of you know, the, the world. And in niyama, the, they are do's. But what is the do? The do is do hold on to, do stabilize in yourself in your Brahman nature all the time. Every moment is an opportunity for you to see that I am awareness, consciousness. I am consciousness, existence, place, not body, mind. This not body, mind is vijatiya That means the not Brahman kind of identification. Drop it. I am existence, consciousness, place, which is sajatiya, the Brahman identification. Stabilize yourself in it. So this is the subtle difference between yama and niyama from the non-dualistic point of view. Other practices, next time. Om um, Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanam Astu.